you didn't know you needed. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Shields, and I need to commence today by paying our respects to a real-life hero that also played a superhero on the big screen, Chadwick Boseman. This past weekend, Chadwick, most known for his role as T'Challa, the Black Panther, passed away at his home after a battle with colon cancer, dramatically highlighting the fact that we truly have no idea the struggles others are dealing with. Chadwick made seven films during his cancer battle, spread across a variety of genres, all displaying the enormity of his talents. It is truly hard to put into words the impact of the release of Black Panther and of Bozeman's depiction of the title character to the black community. People of color, unfortunately, and throughout the history of film and television, have had trouble finding representation of themselves. We could, and should, dedicate an entire episode to the power and need of representation. Not only does it affect how others see people of color, but it affects how they see themselves. It is crucial that the youth in the black community see black lives portrayed on screen, as children's early experiences shape what they imagine to be possible. And that is part of why Black Panther was so incredibly important. Black Panther was a chance for people of every color to see a black hero on screen, one brimming with dignity and grace. Bozeman's contributions to cinema were vast and dynamic and not limited to the Marvel Universe. He brought icons such as Thurgood Marshall, Jackie Robinson, and James Brown to life, and he did so with a sincerity and gentle humanness that was compelling and affecting. Bozeman didn't simply inspire on-screen, but his humanity and spirit could be seen in his benevolence off-screen, a person dedicated to bettering his community, one seen comforting young cancer patients even as he was facing his own battle with the disease. A man outspoken about what is right, speaking truth to power, and raising his voice when the time called for it. As Kareem Abdul-Jabbar put it, Chadwick Boseman was so important to the black community. He was and is a celluloid monument, as powerful as the Lincoln Memorial, a visual manifestation of the qualities African Americans strive for, so that his name conjures the image of a black man with integrity and courage, someone devoted to truth and an unwillingness to compromise his principles. I came upon a great article where Ryan Coogler, the director of The Black Panther, was uh, talking about his first meeting with Chadwick, and what he said is, I noticed that Chad was an anomaly. He was calm, assured, constantly studying, but also kind, comforting, had the warmest laugh in the world and eyes that saw much beyond his years, but could still sparkle like a child seeing something for the first time. We lost a great one. And he gave us so much to live with. R.I.P. King.
Today, we are here to talk about the period drama television show Perry Mason, based on the character of the same name created by Erie Stanley Gardner. The show premiered in June on HBO, and it was a series developed and written by Roland Jones and Ron Fitzgerald and stars Matthew Reese in the title role. The series focuses on the origin story of the famed defense lawyer Perry Mason. In 1932, Los Angeles was prospering while the rest of the U.S. was recovering from the grip of the Great Depression. Down and out, private investigator Perry Mason is struggling with his trauma from the Great War and being divorced. He is hired for a sensational child kidnapping trial, and his investigation portends major consequences for Mason, his client, and the city itself. Besides Reese, uh, who's known for the Americans, Perry Mason also stars Juliet Rylance, John Lithgow, Shea Wiggum, Tatiana Maslany, Chris Chalk, Stephen Root, just to name a few. It's directed and executive produced by Tim Van Patten, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. is also an executive producer. I have with me today a friend of Welcome to Party Pal. He's been on uh, many, many times at this point. Uh, I got with me Justin Wells. How you doing, Justin? I'm, do- I'm doing all right. You know, uh, I- I've recently been a bit bummed out by the amount of uh, QAnon that's actually making it into the mainstream. <laughs> Which is the perfect way to start discussing the radiant assembly of God. I love, uh, we're off and running really, really fast right now. Um, <laughs> I just, I need to know before we get in, and, and I'd, I'd love that where you're going to stare us is great. But do you have, did you have any relationship to um, Earl Stanley Gardner's books, uh, the legal thrillers that are Perry Mason or the classic television show um, that premiered in 1957? Uh, what is star? Um, Raymond Burr. Did you have any uh, relationship with that at all? You know, I, I've seen episodes of it here and there. Yeah. Um, it, it touches upon really my, my my favorite variety of entertainment, which is CD Los Angeles stories of the 1930s shot in a noir manner. Yeah. So um, it, it's right up my alley. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I I would be lying if I said that I was actually sort of like Perry Mason, Raymond Burr, like the original Raymond Burr, Perry Mason kind of aficionado. Sure. In that. I just know that you know he, he he's a a, a more a, a more serialized and obviously more just more stories written about the about the character himself than most other noir antiheroes, mm-hmm. right? But that's basically what he is. And I, I think a really big thing about noir is that it actually gave us like a lot of people like to think that the antihero is because antiheroes are so big in modern American television. And I, and I, and I, as much as it's my favorite show that's ever, you know, kind of graced the air, uh, the Sopranos for better or worse may basically put the anti-hero as, uh, something that's now been done to death. Mm-hmm. And to a point it's done here, because Perry Mason, the way in which Matthew Reese plays him and the way in which the character is written, it's, it's anti-hero stuff, Absolutely. right? There's, there's no real, like, he, his moral fiber here isn't exactly, you know, that tightly knit. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, he the way he starts out, he is uh, he's down and out. He's struggling. He's I mean, he's doing things that um that wouldn't be ethical. And, and, and to your point, um, the golden age of television did not invent the antihero by any means. I mean, it definitely it was a, no. mo- a moment where they came into the mainstream. The more you watch classic films, uh, you watch French New Wave, you watch. I mean, classic television. These, I mean, this is it's it's a trope that existed, but I mean, they definitely um, it came back with a vengeance with you know Walter White and the John Hams and yeah, Tony, of course. But um, 
Yeah, man, I didn't know, uh, you know, much about Perry. I, I would see, you know, it's one of those things. You would see your grandparents watching or something like that in the background. And um, I did know, it, it was known to me that he kind of, uh, the show defined how courtroom dramas were to look. They, they, I mean, that was one of the first that had that feel and that look and that vibe that, that you would see all the way running up through Law and & Order and everything. But um, before we dig in too deep, I mean, just one thing I really like about the show um, is sometimes, you know, I, 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 I kind of like those Law & Order shows. I mean, I think they're fun. They have a beginning, middle, and end, and, you know, you, you get satisfaction out of, you know, the story in, in that one hour. But I like, that was like kind of like, Perry Mason to me was was that, but it was it, oh, wide open. It was like kind of like that, but with room to breathe. Meaning they could take their time with with the case, and you can get to know who these people are. And it wasn't so just this little beginning, middle, end thing. There was a lot of moving pieces, but it was that, but bigger. So I thought that was really cool. The aesthetic was amazing. If you ask me, I, you already mentioned you love the. LA see the underworld of uh, the 30s. I it, it's just it's so so fun to watch and you know the costumes and everything like that. That was something I really really enjoy. I'm actually watching um and you should watch this and everyone out there should watch this. It's called Babylon uh, Berlin. Uh, it's funny. I'm watching two. I was watching two shows set in the 30s. One in Los Angeles. This one uh, and and the other in uh, Berlin. It's really great. It's it's actually shows the years leading up to the Third Reich. We're going to be talking about it in a. Uh, a couple weeks here at uh, Welcome to the Party, pal. But yeah, in uh, the cast, I absolutely love the cast. It's incredible. So there's a, you know, I wouldn't say this is a this is a marvel by any means, but it was it was entertaining shows and it's got a lot of good pieces to it. It is, you know, I, I think that they nailed basically all the parts that you'd want to do of an update of this show. Yeah. Um, you know, they nailed they nailed the fact that it's dark and it's seedy. There's, you know, everything that's shot in the daytime in this show, mm-hmm. in particular, I'm thinking of the image of, you know, a daytime image of Perry Mason's house, which just looks like a real decrepit shithole. Um, <laughs> like, even those, like, in an airfield in Glendale, mm-hmm. um, even those are like, are, are um, you know, there's something that's always just like a little bit off about them. And I, I kind of enjoy that because you, you know, much of this, much of what happens in this series happens at nighttime, right? Yeah. They, that's an, it's an intentional decision that they made. I no mean, doubt. it starts out the first, the first episode I don't think has, I think it has like maybe like, you know, it, it's an hour long and I think 50 of those minutes are nighttime. Yep. And even the, uh, even the act that Perry Mason does is a dark, is, is an act that dark, that's, that's, you know, got a dark name, yep. uh, blackmailing people. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> They, they 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 really they really kept they really tried to keep everything kind of the dark to the dark. I think the and it's funny that you know a lot of the the scenes that are in the light happen at an extraordinarily bizarre church. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, um, I like Nora a lot too. Um, and you you're right. A lot happens in the dark to a point where it almost feels like so, sometimes you're watching it. It almost feels like it's in black and white. And which I just, I yeah. think it's a really, really cool look. Um, uh, so the church seems to fascinate you. I'm not, I'm, that, there's a lot I want to talk about. They're else. so fascinating. <laughs> but, but you've, you've dropped multiple seeds here, um, hints, um, and we should let those seeds and those hints grow. What, uh, what got you about the church? And I mean, uh, the, the, um, the actress who plays, uh, sister, what's her name? Sister 
Sister Alice. Sister Alice is bringing my. I think she's a marvel. She's from um, Orphan Black. That's uh, Tatiana uh, Maslani. Um, she's so good in Orphan Black. If anyone uh, hasn't seen that, it's worth watching for her alone. But uh, what um, what got you about that? It's just she's. It's the type of thing where a character at the same time is being extraordinarily manipulated. Is also extraordinarily manipulative at the same time, and you just don't know what she's. It's almost to the point where you don't know what she's responding to. Like, what kind of what's the stimulus that's getting to her at any time? Besides potentially just a bit of either, are you doing the brainwashing or are you brainwashed? Yeah, yeah. I think that that that's something you uh, I question a lot in um, you know kind of what we see out there with the conspiracy theories um, that are kind of abounding does this person really believe it or is this just something they're peddling? Yeah, it, it, it's tough to tell. And I think that basically, you know, it, it's the fact that, so I know I said I was going to rant about QAnon at I some want point. You to. Here, I here. really do. Here, here. I mean, what, what's the inciting incident in the, in the mystery they're solving? You're solving the story of, of, a, of, a, of a tiny child murdered with his eyes sewed open. Yep. Right? And then you get into the concept of a CD church that has some peripheral involvement with this. And you're just like, oh, this is it too on the nose. Are we actually talking about a situation where, um, you know, there, there's, there's a kidnapping and there's some sort of child pedophilia ring or some yeah. sort of child murder ring coming <laughs> from a church. And it's all just very, very, very strange. Yeah. Um, it just, it, it it got to me. It made it that those episodes, like so. The first episode with the, with the child death, and then like the you know, I got kind of the middle episodes. There was a portion of it that was a bit of a slog to me. Okay, right, and it and it's just making sense of how uh, the, the child Charlie's death fits into all these other aspects of what of what's going on, and that's where I think that they might have just overwritten it slightly. Yeah. Yep. Because it gets confusing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, there was definitely a lot of different pieces. Some, some of the uh, confusion to me was some of the um, the uh, crooked police officers were all looking exactly the same to me for a little while. Um, yeah, no, there, there's definitely, uh, you know, the hole kept getting bigger and bigger as they were digging, and it, it for a minute I was having a hard time digging out. That's definitely the case. Um, I got there. Sometimes I was even wondering where they, you know, kind of what, was Sister Alice's purpose in the whole thing, and and just did it tie in tightly? I don't know if it always did. Um, I just I did. I just always enjoyed her scenes, and and there was always uh, there's a lot to look at. That's that's just pleasing, and she's so great. But uh, I don't know if that worked perfectly. The tie in with the church and the case, but um, I don't I don't think it I don't think it worked. Yeah, I, I think that's I think fair. it was amused. I, I think it was weird and amusing at yeah, points, but was. I don't think it worked. And I think when it comes down to it, right, you know, if you're watching, if you're, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, the reason that the, ch the church really in the end has ultimately nothing to do with the, you know, the case itself. Sure. Right. Yeah. In the end, it's just Strickland paying off a, paying off a juror yeah. and, and Perry Mason being a decent lawyer. Exactly. And I, that's what I don't, I don't think it fit in tightly. It was, it was, it was connected in the whole thing, but I don't think that was perfectly written. And, and, and um, yeah, I, yeah, no, they, like, like I just said earlier, um, I don't think this was a Marvel. I, I, I like, I don't think, I, and I, usually when I come on here and, you know, we do episodes or 
you know, we do welcome the party to all episodes. It's something I'm just like, you got to check this out. I think this is highly entertaining television. I'm actually. It's good. It's good. I, it's, I, I would agree. It's, it's, and, 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 and uh, you know, I was kind of pulled in right away when I, when I see the kind of the pedigree for it. I mean, when Tim Van Patten was involved, he, he directed a lot of the episodes and executive producers. He's, he's a, he was a big part of Boardwalk. He's worked on Deadwood, The Wire, um, The Pacific. He's done some Game of Thrones, Sopranos, Black Mirror. I mean, he, he's just anything he's touching, I'm going to be involved in. Um, you know, I know the showrunners, Roland Jones. Uh, you know, they did Friday Night Lights, and um, he was involved in Boardwalk and Weeds, too. And Ron Fitzgerald did Friday Night Lights and uh, Weeds, too. And I, I just knew there was something. They were going to go all in on it. And, and so I was all in immediately. But I love John Lithgow a lot. And at one point, and we got to talk about EB, uh, at one point, the show about episode three, it was kind of that they put John Lithgow's character, character EB, right up against um, Stephen Root's character, who was like the, the DA, and it was kind of like they, I really thought that we'd be seeing them two butt heads the whole time, which which would have been wonderful. But we did lose, yeah, uh, you know. At one point, it was it was that was pretty hard. I like Lith- I love watching Lithgow on stage on screen. I think he's fantastic. That was a he was a tragic character, and that was quite a loss we took with with his passing. Yeah, I mean, he kind of just. Sound like a loser. <laughs> yeah, it was no. It was really it was a tragic situation. It, at first, you thought he was when you first met him, you thought he was powerful um, and just you know kind of uh, a mentor. He would be a mentor to um, Harry, but he he wasn't that. He was he was a mess as well. He was broken. Yeah, yeah. completely broken. Completely broken. And but I you know I guess that was part of it. It was because um, Perry it it. it he didn't grow wings and, and learn to fly until after uh, Lithgow went. And, um, you know, that's kind of, that's when he stepped into, you know, who he was and kind of, um, you know, came into his own, which, which, which makes a lot of sense. It's, this is something um, I, I do recommend it to uh, people who, who kind of get off on the lawyer shows and the whole thing. Um, for those who do admire the justice system, which I do <laughs> do have <laughs> less and less sometimes these days and have faith in it less and less. But I mean, it, the, the show really culminates, um, at least when speaking about Perry, Perry's character arc, when he realizes the uh, kind of the, the, the power of, of, of being in the system and the power of law and what he could do if he was involved in the justice system. So if you're into kind of like the, you know, uh, justice system porn, if you will, this is, this is your show. Cause it was, that was when he really was like, he's, you know, decided I need to get involved here because this is where I can make the biggest difference. Yeah, but it, it's funny because the character that actually realizes the real power of it is one of the more crooked ones. It's uh, it's the uh, Peter Strickland, Shea Wiggum character. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Because if you think about it, you know, he, he's basically Perry's side man. Basically, you know, does, does a lot of... It, it's weird because you're talking about a character in Perry Mason who, like, you know, Matthew Reese's version of him is basically 95% doing dirty work. Yeah. And he found someone even dirtier to do more dirty work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I love, yeah. I, I love Shay too. I'm such a fan of Shay. He's, he's very, very, I'm a big fan. I, I mean, you know, he, he's, he's great in the fact that he's able somehow to play, um, to, to humanize completely downtrodden losers. Mm-hmm. No, it's amazing to even, um, um, any of the characters he played to even like them. And, and, 
but you do. I, I did when he was Nucky Thompson's um, brother, and in this case, he was a complete sleazeball, but, like, he was... He had this competence about him that was definitely appealing. Um, he was looking out for his family, trying to make a buck, and he was, I mean... He was he was doing some of the the harder work, and he just said, "Come on, Perry, stop stop fucking this up," you know. I I, I really really enjoyed his character. I like um, uh, Della Della uh, Street. She's played by um, wait uh, Julia Juliet Rylance. Um, I think I know her from the Nick. But uh, I'm hoping they're gonna do another season, and I'm all for it. I'm ready for another case. Uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Um, but uh, I think there's gonna be a ton more Della. I think there's going to be a whole lot more. Um, what's the other character I'm thinking of? To uh, Paul Drake as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, Chris, Chris Chalk was fantastic in that yeah, role. Yeah, he, he's so serious. It's he, he, I mean that's I saw Matthew Reese talking about him, and he's like he was asked to describe him one word. He's like intense, and uh, you know every time he's speaking, he's he is he's really really intense. It's wild. Yeah, I mean it, it's going to be interesting too, just because of the fact that you know. Oh, considering that nearly every single cop in the show is crooked, yep. um, the, the, you know, feels like that feels like uh, Drake is the only one. And I guess the uh, Holcomb, the Eric, Eric Lane's character, those are the only two I feel who are actually like kind of left alive. Um, yeah. so, no, they, I think they're the only know, ones. They got it. They, 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 they need a new police department. <laughs> Absolutely. They need, yeah, they defund, abolish that and then, and then go from there. Yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's interesting, you know, I heard the words, Perry Mason. It's just kind of something that was out there. And it's like, it, everyone knows the name, but you know, no one, um, you know, p- people really don't know more than that. What does it mean? And, but I, I did some digging and it turns out and like, I was always wondering, I'm like, when Perry Mason was announced, I'm like, is this, is this kind of, did, did we need a Perry Mason backstory? But if you look into it and you look at the show, he had no backstory really in the show. In the books, he definitely does, but the backstory was actually needed. He, he uh, you know, um, actually, no, the books didn't even have it. Gardner, he, Gardner, I believe, died in early seventies. He didn't provide much backstory, um, and so there was no personality there. And so what what they did here was create that, and they had you know a whole palette to work with to paint on. And you know, I thought the World War II aspects were really cool. I mean. Because if you think about it, I mean, if you're coming back from, you know, something like that, I mean, not only are you... You mean World War, you mean World War I, not World War II. I, I apologize, World War I. Yeah. I mean, think about what that would do to somebody. Thank you for fixing that. Absolutely. Those scenes, World War I, I don't do well watching World War I scenes at all. Not that any war scenes are, are palpable by any means, but I mean, the trenches, the blowtorches, the, just the whole thing, I, I, I don't do well. You mean that you mean that basically taking a war that combined the construct of field armies yep. that have the field armies and mechanized killing machines is a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's. it's I, I mean, it, 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 it's that just the fact that you know. I, I think they teeter on the brink with the character of creating just enough backstory to make him kind of traumatized, yeah. and and uh, I, I think that they need to do that for the way in which they chose to take this and. You know, even though look, Perry, Perry Mason, the original argument for the Raymond Bear one is it's a lot more of a courtroom procedural yep. than than this is, right? Yes. No, and no, that's what I'm saying. If, yep. if, they, if they left it as if they left it as a courtroom procedural, that that decision doesn't have to be made because effectively, you know, all you have to do is give him some sort of uh, some sort of you know argument argumentation powers. Like you know, it's, I mean, if you think about it, 
Like, what are the three big kind of detective genre stories that are in that are in like pop culture television? Matlock, mm-hmm. or before actually, but like we're thinking basically it's Matlock, Murder She Wrote, Perry Mason, yep. and Columbo, yeah. and they each have their own tick. But their ticks don't necessarily have to come from having like a convoluted backstory that creates, uh, you know, uh, why is this character a depressed drunk who lives in a hobble, right? Yeah. That's what they did here, and that was an intentional decision, I guess. And I, I think they, they probably had to do that because, you know, I think everybody now um, demands more exposition of their main characters sure. than than, pre- than like you know previous than previous formulaic television. Also, because you know what. It, it, those shows were written to be like, you know, an hour. It's a different case every single week. Yep. And, y- you know, the, the the character only lives that week of the case, even though they have their, you know, their tick, right? Yep. So like, Matt, you know, Col- the Columbo being a moron and, and just showing to everybody that you might be kind of slow and stupid until you show them that they've been duping them all along, <laughs> right? They don't need to do that here. They just can create, um, they can just create the character as a really harmed depressed manic shell mm-hmm. and use that as a vehicle to go through 1930s Los Angeles. Yep. I mean, the, it, I think there's a lot of homage to some things that came before it. And, uh, the only thing I was waiting for was Perry and, uh, and Drake to, uh, go face Holcomb at the victory motel. <laughs> oh yeah. But, um, I, I mean, that's something that, they, you can do so easily. It's, and I'm not saying they did it poorly, but like when when it comes to just you know taking someone from war. I, I mean, I watch Peaky Blinders and just like any of these things that come after that. It does. It's it's such a way to to give so much backstories right away. I mean, because backstory right away when because because when he comes back from war, I mean. Not only is he dealing with depression and PTSD, which you can bake right into the story, they're also hardened a little bit, and they're more capable. And so he's kind of got that all going for him, even though he looks like he's completely, completely broken. I have two questions for you, um, and uh, uh, I just because I'm so curious about both of them. Um, the first, what is, uh, did Perry Mason did he set up that bribe that um, Pete gave the juror? Like, do you do you believe that he, like, did Shay? Um, Sorry, Pete. I should, I should call him by his character's name. Do you believe Pete went about it on his own to um, to give the juror money? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that that that's one of the things. I mean, I think that they tried to paint it as to where it could happen, and that he maybe, maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. Yeah. Um, my read is that it, um, he did it on his own. That was to get my the read Catrice. too. To get the case over with, yep. to get away from Perry, because yep. their relationship was very, very toxic. It was broken. Yeah, there was. There's only one thing that that um, kind of makes you think otherwise. The last scene you see between them, um, you see Pete ask him, "He's like, what's the move?" That's like one of the last things he yeah. says to him. So there's a, there's a possibility that that Perry was involved. But the the good thing there was that it didn't matter. That was that was the thing that that you know it turned out that that Jerry wasn't even. You know, other jurors made the decision uh, as well. And the other question I had, um, do you think, um, you know, for season two, uh, I mean, is Sister Alice um, done? Is there a way that she could be kind of worked back into any of the story? I don't know if I see it. I mean, she's in Carmel now. It's She's kind of out of the picture. Carmel's beautiful, by the way. She should just kind of enjoy there. Do you, yeah, do you see, I, I think you... I don't think it would I work. mean... Uh, 
they kind of foreshadowed that they might do it. Yeah, and she, I mean, she's, I don't think it'll work. Yeah, it's it's it, but they it, foreshadowed. It, it would it would be. I think it would be really tough to do it with Grace to, to like kind of slide it. In. I, I almost feel if they did bring her back, it would feel forced, and I wouldn't be surprised if they did. She's she's such a talented actress. I, I would like to see her more. I just don't know if they can make it work. Yeah, I, I just I feel like they really kind of telegraphed it, and um, it, it's one of those spots where I mean, it was like the second to last shot of the season is the two of them talking in a diner. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's telegraphed. Yeah, but uh, I can I, I I think that they might end up. I, I think that I don't think they're going to throw the character away. I don't either. I don't either. I just I just I I I don't know how they can do it uh, uh, kind of smoothly. Um, one thing, another thing that I, I did enjoy, um, I thought it was surprisingly funny at points. There was... Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, there was like that sex scene um, with uh, that female pilot where she's just absolutely destroying him in bed, which is, that was hilarious. And there's, you know, kind of many, many jokes about Perry's disheveled looks and everything like that. I, I, I actually thought it was very tactful how, the, how they, you know, use humor in this. I thought they did a great job with that. I do too, especially also because the show itself really shouldn't be remotely funny nope. because it is basically the, a story of a child who may or may not have been murdered. Yeah. Um, but, and, uh, you know, police corruption and, uh, you know, basically cops acting as, as hitmen for psychotics. Yeah. <laughs> there was some, um, when you, when you mentioned the, there were some pretty gross scenes too. They They weren't afraid to take you right inside the morgue and, you know the whole thing with the baby's eyes. There was there was multiple times I'm like, damn. It's it, it, oh, well another to combine those two thoughts I was just having with disgusting plus funny. I mean that when he kind of when he put the body out on the golf course, I thought I just that's funny and also pretty disgusting. Uh, yeah, so. it, it is. It's objectively funny. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that basically the only time that people should laugh at death is when it happens in TV shows that they know are fiction. Yes, no, exactly. And you can. I, I, actually, I really like black comedies, and, and I don't know. I think we need to laugh at that at some time. I think too many times, uh, I don't know. I, I'm kind of going, if my, my, I was about to steer us in a different way, because I just, I love that, I love other cultures besides, uh, you know, this rigid American culture that, that, you know, defines my world. I love other cultures that speak about death a whole lot more. And I think it would be a whole lot healthier. And, I, and not that we should be laughing about death, especially, you know, unnatural death, but it's, I mean, it, it would be nice if we talked about it a little more, but I mean, I think we should laugh at death sometimes. It happens yes, to everybody. It does. <laughs> that's that's we, the one thing that happens to everybody. We, we share well, this. I, I honestly, and I, I think so much in, you know, I, I know, I feel like we go this direction every time and just, just the baby boomers, <laughs> the boomers. This is like so many of uh, you know that that generation didn't want to talk about things, and and you know I I feel you know it's kind of left us uh, a lot of our generation is, is getting almost clowned for wanting to over talk about things, but that I mean communication and and laughing and talking about things is healthy. And keeping this, keeping things in, and not talking about it. I, I, I know when people are like are sick, like in my family, like my parents, and you know that people aren't, or, or like just someone's doing something that's a little, you know, offbeat or something. It's not discussed. Nothing is brought up, and I think that's crazy. Yeah, well, I think that's the difference between uh, you know me a Jew and you a non-Jew. 
all the offbeat stuff gets brought up. Does it? Is that the thing? <laughs> yeah, we're yeah, uh, that's that's true. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all out on the table. That's a good point. It's not it's bottled yeah. up in my uh my my oddly Christian Christian family, I'll tell you I'll tell you that much. But um I don't know. Do you have anything more about QAnon? You, you seem fired up. I okay. I, I, this is going to get a little bit tangent because some yes. of this is not going to be kind of related to this at all. But like some of it, some of it does relate to the the Church of the uh, the Radiant Assembly of God, right? So like the entire premise of QAnon is that there is some sort of deep seated pedophile ring that's run by global lubies and that. Trump is the one who's going to stop this, mm-hmm. right? That's at the, the heart. Just, that's the that's like at the heart of the whole thing, right? The heart of the whole thing. Yeah. The basic the basic premise of the conspiracy is whether or not Trump is the one to stop it. it, it I don't know. I guess he's. I guess uh, you know. I feel weird bestowing this sort of power on him, but like you know, if uh, if you know, I guess he's the prophet to stop all of it. Yeah, they're in the, but, Q like, Q is a person who supposedly who he is he in touch with Trump. Yeah, I don't know if he's in touch with Trump or he's just sort of just an anonymous person. Okay. I, I, it is such a strange conspiracy theory. Yeah. And then watching a church, watching this particular church, mm-hmm. everything about it is so disturbing down to the fact that, like, the empty casket. That was wild. That was absolutely was fucked wild. up, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the hope they kept giving her. And they, I mean, not only the empty casket, they gave her a fake baby at one point. Yeah. That was so messed up. And that's why I, I think we are absolutely right that it didn't fit completely. It, it, like those puzzle pieces didn't fit with the church and the case perfectly at all. But it was also fascinating and weird and Truly. compelling in some crazy so bizarre. way. It was so bizarre. It doesn't make sense. But at the same time, and I guess like, like, this is where I don't necessarily in some ways get the point of the Alice character, even though she's fascinating Yeah, is like, it's shown like we know basically in the end that, you know, Charlie, you know, the, the baby dies from basically a, a heroin overdose. Yep. But, um, yep. that, that was but, wild too. How they set that up. Yeah. That was, that was super, I hate to use the word clever for something so deviant, but like that was clever that he used her in that way through the, the heroin, through the breast milk. That's crazy. Yeah. It's nuts. It's not a way that things, it, it's not a way that someone should die, yep. but, um, yep. you know, and, but like, and at the same time, I'm certain it's happened probably many times over sure. in this world. Cause Absolutely. it's a fucked up place. Yep. But the whole thing with Alice being ba- basically bearing that, I feel like she's like, what's the premise is the premise, of the character that she's just, lonely and looking for something and is able to be foisted into this incredibly odd church with its bizarre child sacrifice rituals. And like that to me kind of like, you know, once again, it's a little too on the nose with what's going on with Q. (laughs) Maybe this is me trying to fit together pieces that shouldn't be fit together, but it's just like, you know, we've all been isolated for a while. We all don't really have a ton of interaction with the outside world outside basically was on our television. So like, yeah, of course I'm going to put this piece of things together because I'm also like, you know, my brain's broken. <laughs> I am so glad. Uh, I didn't put those pieces together, but I am so damn glad you did. And I'm so glad we get to talk about that. So, um, yeah, I, I do not think that like when Robert Downey Jr. and his <laughs> wife, it's really like, let's remake Perry Mason. 
that they were like, oh, yeah, let's also fit QAnon into it. I doubt (laughs) strongly that that was in any way their, their, you know, their intention. No, I mean, these these conspiracy ideas and the the craziness that many of us think is novel and new and this divisiveness that we think is novel and new, it's been going on. And, and, you know, these are stories um, as, as old as time, really. So... Yeah, uh, you know what's wild is um is they uh they have a second season coming. I'm excited for it. I I I could use more of this, and I want to see more Della. And I, I will easily I'll easily watch oh, it. It was, yeah. it was it was it was it was perfect escapism. It's really like it's I don't know. It's it's fun to look at. I like Matthew Reese a lot. I love the Americans, and I could just take a journey with him. I think he's great. I think the rest of the cast around him was great. Um, what's fascinating is. If they chose to go on and, and, and do whatever, they have um, 87 books to source from, 87. So, of course, they wouldn't do 87 seasons or anything like that. But if you source through that, you could, you could pick, you pick the six best and make some seasons. They could, they, you know, they could really do something that's a lot of fun, which is cool. I have one uh, fun fact before we go. The uh, client who walks in at the end of uh, Chapter 8, you know, you could just assume that she's just some woman and they're kind of setting something up. But uh, her name is Eva Griffin. And uh, that is the name of the client featured in uh, the case of the Velvet Claws, um, which is uh, the very um, first Perry uh, Mason novel. Um, So hold on. Hmm. So that feels like it's either a throwback or foreshadowing. Odds are just like a wink to, you know, what was, uh, was, you know, the first one and just kind of, you know, a nice, I don't know if there's Perry Mason nerds out there, but you know, a a hat tip to them, but also it could be the setup of the next case. And so the case um, of the velvet claws, this is what it is real quick. Thanks to a bungled robbery at a fancy hotel, the already married Eva Griffin has been caught in the company of a prominent Congressman to protect the uh, Politico. Eva's ready to pay the editor of a sleazy tabloid, his hush money. But Perry, May- but, but Perry Mason has other plans. He tracks down the phantom fat cat who secretly runs the blackmailing tabloid, only to discover a shocking scoop. By the time Mason's um, client finally comes clean, her husband has taken a bullet in the heart. Now Perry Mason has two choices. Represent the cunning widow in her wrangle for the dead man's money or take the rap for the murder. So that could uh, that could possibly be season two. I doubt it. I think they were just doing a fun little nod, but uh, there's more to come, and it should be fun. Yeah, and this brings me to my next idea that I want to leave uh, you with as a thought. Yeah. Um, we need to get someone on the phone to write a Zoomer remake of the Hardy Boys. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they're sourcing back everything. I was going to do an exercise where we where we uh, recast um, Columbo, and um, you know. Uh, what did you say? Murder, She Wrote. What was the other one you said? You nailed them all. But, um, what was the fourth one? It's Columbo. Col- Columbo, Matlock, Matt Murder, Locks. She Wrote, Matt Mary Locks. Mason. Yeah. We will, we'll spin yeah, it. it, it it's even that. I mean, even Law and Order, to a point, it comes down that kind of path. Because, like, you know, there are, you know, and I, I, I am going to say that I am not the biggest Law and Order expert. Like, no. I know it in passing because um, I've been in various different living situations where <laughs> it has been on fairly regularly. Um but you now, even then, like I think, even the detectives and those have their own kind of, you know, pastiche. Yeah. I also think that Law and Order, unlike the rest of them, also is uh, 
a bit of propaganda. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Still entertaining though. It is. Propaganda uh, might be like my problematic favorite right now. I, I, it is I, entertaining. I love that. Um, that's being discussed about, 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 you know, how, how films and television have been propping up, um, police in a different way. I mean, the, the, the I feel like it, I had to open my eyes to it. The fact that I was kind of like celebrating cops who were like beating confessions out of people and stuff like that. I had no qualms with it till I sat back and thought about it. It's wild. Yeah. It's, it's actually when you sit back and really think about the wire, you figure out that Jimmy McNulty was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. These are they were they were so so many of the um, the these characters we've held in high esteem are uh, are are doing some really, really messed up things, breaking the law, the constitution and the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a story for another. Harry Mason, Very, constitution breaker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we'll see soon. How he further breaks the constitution. Justin, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I, I was, um, uh, you hit me up one day. You're like, yo, let's do Perry Mason. I hadn't even watched it and I'm glad you did. I'm glad I watched it. And, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about it. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to when we actually get to talk about Lovecraft Country. Oh, my gosh. Do you want to do that? I want to do that. All right, cool. No, I, I'm already... T- it's, I'm, um, it's wild. I already have lots lots of thoughts. That'll be great. So that'll be the next time me and Justin convene. We'll do Lovecraft Country. And uh, thanks again, Justin. And thank you, everyone out there, for once again joining the party. It makes no difference if it's sweet or hot, hot, hot. Just give that rhythm everything you got. Oh, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. One more time. Do what, 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 do what